the legacy status quo players benefit when everybody's kind of doing their own thing. This is Christy Gupton, and I'm an employee benefits advisor. I understand how hard it is to embrace change when you have employees depending on you for a great health plan. This podcast is uniquely designed to answer your most pressing questions. Let's get right to it. Today's discussion is with Kristen Deacon of Versan Consulting. You may know her as the public sector leader who oversaw the New Jersey State Health Plan, creating positive change and saving $2 billion for that plan's members. Today, we settle in for a great conversation about the ERISA fiduciary duty. Enjoy today's opportunity to learn from Kristen Deacon. Okay, welcome Kristen Deacon to Healthcare Solutions Podcast. It's quite a pleasure. I've admired you from afar for a long time, watching your work on LinkedIn and and different other news sources. So I'm totally excited that you're joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, have the conversation. Yes, me too. There's a lot uh, uh, going on right now that is all around the subject of the fiduciary duty. When employers sponsor a health plan, they have a a framework around which they are supposed to, um, you know, to supposed to conduct themselves. And it's all been handled very officially and kind of like in a, a much more serious manner on the retirement side But it's like the health plan side got a pass for a long time. (laughs) And I think we're starting to see more attention being paid to the health plan side. Comment about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the way that I would describe it is it feels like there's sort of a day of reckoning coming. I don't think it's there yet. But certainly, you know, if I'm reading some of the tea leaves, some of the changes in the Consolidated Appropriations Act um, of both of 2020 and 2021, some of the recent case law that has both been, um, you know, I think there have been some headwinds, but certainly the cases that have been filed are signaling that there is a day of reckoning coming. And that really is, I mean, ultimately the question is, who is the fiduciary? right? Can you sort of delegate or outsource that fiduciary duty to a third party as a health plan administrator under ERISA or for a public sector plan? And then ultimately, what is the enforcement mechanism if there is an abrogation or breach of that duty? And I think those things are still sort of to be seen, but I know that you and I are on the edge of our seats. And I I think a lot (laughs) of other people are, are as well to see how that plays out. And not only are we on the edge of our seats, but, you know, I, I hope that there are a lot of people playing an active role in making sure that they continue to play out and we get some really favorable results that will ultimately accrue to the benefit of employers, purchasers of healthcare, and patients and employees who are also paying for healthcare. That's right. You know, I, I know that we were both uh, kind of on the edge of our seats with the recent decision and, and, you know, pardon me because I'm not a lawyer. And a lot of times I, I fumble and stumble trying to find the right legal words to describe these things. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm glad you're my guest today because <laughs> you are a lawyer. <laughs> 
But the case between uh, some kind of laborers union mm-hmm. and Blue Cross of Massachusetts. So we, I think both of us and, and a variety of other people were all thinking, okay, this is the day when someone is finally going to say that um, Blue Cross is acting as a fiduciary, but it didn't mm-hmm. happen. Right. Talk about that a little bit. First, just to back up. Yeah. The Massachusetts Laborers Health and Welfare Fund, their trustees filed a complaint against Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts essentially alleging improper payments, payments according to, you know, in improper amounts, pay first, chase later, that would, you know, to the detriment of the fund. And they brought these claims pursuant to, you know, alleging a breach of a fiduciary duty pursuant to ERISA, right? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you know, I think you and I and a lot of people in the space are really excited because, you now have a union trust fund who is taking on, and, and we've seen that they've been very hesitant to sort of take on the big bukas um, in this space. So you, you see a labor fund taking on sort of the, the big players in the room, the status quo entities and saying enough is enough. You're not giving me my data. You're not giving me transparency. You're paying my claims in, in, you know, in incorrect amounts. You're then charging me to go recover funds that you should have never played in the first place, sort of set out all the things that we, we know to be happening in the space. Um, but yeah. now we finally have it in a complaint from an organization that has standing to bring the complaint. And ultimately, I think the blow came, you know, a couple of weeks ago, obviously, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts fought it. They filed what's called a motion to dismiss. And it's a 12B6 motion to dismiss. I'm going to get a little wonky here only because it's really important. And essentially the standard of review for the judge on this is accepting all of the factual allegations as true. You still fail to state a claim. And therefore I'm going to dismiss this, this court case. And ultimately the judge, I think, went to some you know, lengths and engaged in some legal gymnastics to get there. But ultimately, the judge dismissed the complaint for failures to state a claim upon which relief could be granted. So again, the important thing here is not because I'm trying to give anybody a legal education, please know. (laughs) It's the fact that the judge had to, for the purposes of this motion and this dismissal, assume that all of the really awful things that they were being accused of, they, they had to assume that all of these things were true. And even assuming they were all true, you still fail. And here's the reason why. The judge found that Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts was not a fiduciary, either in name or in practice. So number one, they weren't a named fiduciary in any of the, the plan documents in the contract. Okay, we can live with that. Usually they never agree to that. But number two, something I think a lot of fiduciaries and health plan administrators are sort of relying on is that, yeah, we don't, you know, contractually call you a fiduciary, but in practice, you're exercising such discretion over our plan and plan assets that you're a de facto fiduciary or what we call a functional fiduciary. And there's been case law, I think, if anybody sort of is from this space, you've heard of the Hylex case out of Michigan, where essentially the court has says, like, yeah, you may not have agreed to be called a fiduciary in the contract, but you're exercising such discretion over this self-funded plan's money 
And it's all sort of behind closed doors in a non-transparent manner. You don't let them see your contracts. You don't know the negotiated rates that you're essentially acting as a fiduciary and therefore you owe a heightened sort of standard of loyalty and care and good faith and fair dealing and all the rest of it. But this judge says, no, this judge says, in fact, it would be untenable for a TPA like Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts to ever agree to act as a fiduciary because it would be contrary to their business interests. And that's why I think this is really shocking. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I relate to the people filing the complaint because they have such a shroud of secrecy over the way claims are paid and the amount at which claims are paid. So I feel like I identify with them when they want to pin the fiduciary duty on the claims payer, the processor. But at the end of the day, the judge said, I'm sorry, this doesn't fit the definition. You, employer, are still, whether you like yeah. it or not, you're still the fiduciary. And I think right. that is, that was the shocker. But once we let it settle on us for 30 seconds, mm-hmm. <laughs> then we were like, oh, but we already knew that. Right. And so now that, <laughs> now that we are really official in our understanding that the employer is always the fiduciary, then by golly, let's go to work. Let's go to work and help them be the best fiduciary they can be. And, and I I just, I almost felt empowered by it after I finally saw the silver lining and I was like, fine, Mm -hmm. fine. Let's just get to work. Yeah. I gave, I gave a talk uh, a week ago where I was going, you know, sort of quickly pivoted my notes because I wanted to talk about this case. And I had a lot of employers in in the room and I said, now here's the, here's the good news. You all are on notice, right? There is a very clear direction now that not only are you the fiduciary and you can't sort of delegate that, but the judge said, your remedy is contractual. So I think this is where it gets like where the rubber really hits the road in terms of, okay, now we know that we are the sole fiduciary buck stops with us, but what can we, what, what could we have done differently in this instance to prevent the improper payments and the uh, information blockade with data? It, like, if our remedy is solely contractual, how could I have protected myself and set myself up for success in terms of a contractual remedy. Because what the laborers here were saying is that Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, essentially, you know, they wouldn't hand over data. They wouldn't give them enough information to, to really allow them to even sort of engage in a preliminary discovery process. So I think, again, so clear distinction, you know that you're the fiduciary, but then also your contracts and what is in your contracts in terms of requirements for data transparency, price transparency, audit rights, claim review rights, all of those things have to be crystal clear and they are so important. They always were important, but even more, even more so now. And you know, how many years in law school or, or, or portions of years were dedicated to contract law when you were in school. I mean, it, it's a serious thing. It takes a lot of learning to understand how to read and write and deal with contracts, right? Yeah, 
Yes. This is not for the amateur. (laughs) And, And unfortunately, brokers, maybe finance officers, HR professionals, none of us are lawyers. And, and, and maybe we do the best we can to understand contracts. But at the end of the day, I think we need a lawyer to help us. I, yeah, I'm, I'm just putting that even <laughs> even if there are lawyers sitting in those seats, right, to be a contract specialist. I mean, you could spend your entire career looking at ASA agreements and never want for work. Right. Like sure. the 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 amount of sort of or provider contracts, the intricacies and knowing the law in this space because it takes a, a firm sort of grip on the federal re- regulatory environment, your state regulatory environment, your ERISA regulatory environment, and then also just making sure you're coming to an agreement that accurately reflects both parties' intentions and agreement. It's a really complex thing. I think that we could really benefit as a society and, and certainly in the employer world from more standardized contracts. I was, I was sort of drawing an analogy, you know, 30, 40 years ago, the construction industry was just so inefficient because it was all always mired in litigation over contracts. And so every stakeholder in the room got together, decided they needed to solve this problem, and they came up with a body to come up with standardized contracts. And those are AIA contracts, right? And everybody today, like that's the basis. And so you agree upon a set of parameters, but everybody is sort of playing off the same sheet of music. That's not going to happen in healthcare, but for employers driving that process and and forward-thinking consultants and brokers. Because again, I go back to that sort of information asymmetry. The legacy status quo players benefit when everybody's kind of doing their own thing, right? Um, right. And when there's a lack of standardization, but yeah, it is highly specialized. It can be daunting for somebody with an HR staff of one to, to come to an ASC <laughs> agreement with one of the largest companies in the country, you know, whether that's Anthem or United or whomever, but we need to do more to equip those players with better information and the skills to needed to draft and agree to smarter contracts. Yeah. And I think, and I'll go ahead and put a plug in here for a group that I'm a part of called Mitigate Partners. We're all about taking health plans apart, almost like you were a kid in shop class when your teacher put an engine on the table, like a car engine and said, okay, take it apart and put it back together um, and make sure it works. We're kind of like that. We're taking health plans apart. We're identifying all of the high-performing partners that can do the work of health plans. And then we're, we're putting in those new parts and then we put the engine back together and it works, but it works without the need for the, the Buka um, fingerprint on them. The, the Blue Cross United Cigna Aetna fingerprint. That's what Buka stands for, for anybody right. who doesn't know that already. But I, I want to settle on one thing related to this particular complaint before we kind of extrapolate into other things, but doesn't it sort of call into question this thing that we've heard employers say over and over? And that is, yeah, but if I leave Blue Cross or if I leave a Buka, the employees will revolt. And what I want to point out about that is 
it is the buka <laughs> part of the plan that is creating and causing so much hurt. And so when the even the employees of the laborers union must have been saying, wait a minute, this is this is this hurts. This hurts my wallet to have so much money come out. And we're, we still don't have the kind of benefit that we used to have. And I mean, union benefits are kind of known for being very rich in their design. And so when the union is even saying, look, we've got to pick apart the way this works, even down to the way claims are paid. And when they start to pull back the covers and realize things aren't as good as, as they thought they were. I mean, why are we defending and not agreeing to take a look at alternative methods of payment arrangements for our provider network. And I, I just I just feel like the whole argument around, oh, we have to have a buka just crumbles beneath us when we look at what's actually happening. And finally, see these unions, and this isn't the only one. We, you've got, okay, this laborers union in, in Massachusetts, but you've also got this uh, municipal type thing in Louisiana that's happening against team health. Even Hollywood actors are not immune, (laughs) (laughs) are not immune to this whole conversation because you've got the Screen Actors Guild that is even dealing with their own lawsuits and and the term fiduciary. Well, I found that, that word 36 times in that complaint when I read it. So this is becoming a really uh, elevated sort of national conversation around union um, benefits. Yeah, and I think it's the right um, sort of class, if you will, of whether it's plaintiffs or, or um, stakeholders that that are pursuing this. And I, and this is why, right? There is mm-hmm. no other sort of ready organized group that has a clearer message and narrative about how healthcare has eroded wages over time, right? Because they go to a bargaining table with management and they talk about COLA or raises, or if I'm going to get a $5 raise for my membership and my health premiums are going to go up by $6, I've just lost for my union, like my membership, right? Right. And, and I also think unions are having a moment right now, given our current, current labor market. We've seen some of the, the recent really rem- like groundbreaking uh, organizations uh, in the last few weeks. But I, I think that that's why it's the right class, because, again, there's just a very direct correlation. There's a clear narrative. I think one statistic or tidbit that really struck me on this point was back in 2008 during the the Great Recession, when the auto industries were sort of going through a a reorganization, the the amount of healthcare dollars that came out of, you know, an hourly wage, I think it was, you know, for every $158, it was something like 75 to 86 was spent on healthcare for these folks. And you just got to think like, my goodness, who, who's not looking at that? Like who's asleep at the wheel (laughs) and, and just think what those dollars in individuals pockets could do. I mean, we think we're seeing an inflation problem now in the country when it comes to buying milk and food and gas and the rest of it, you bump that line and that trend against healthcare and healthcare continues to outpace it by like four times. You know, I was, I was doing some math, uh, easy math the other day. If milk 
like the inflation rate of milk, if you were to compare that to like if milk were to in, inflate in price, like healthcare would, we'd all be paying $15 a gallon for milk right now. Oh gosh. Right. Yeah. It's kind of crazy, but yeah, I, I do think that they're, they're having a moment and I'm really excited about it. So, you know, we jumped so quickly into some of these complex um, discussions and, t- and current events, but let's level set for just a second. Remind the audience what the fiduciary duty is. There's really four key elements. And the one that we uh, really have to focus on, which is the plan paying reasonable expenses. But, but go back and just reiterate the four elements of the fiduciary duty. And then let's talk about the really important one. I always said when I first started in this space, I knew I wasn't going to be able to know everything about healthcare. But if I had a framework for making decisions and what I called a fiduciary framework, I knew that I would come to a good decision. Maybe not the best, maybe not you know the right in hindsight, but a really good, sound, principled decision. So these are the fiduciary sort of the bullets, if you will. Um, and again, I kept that DOL handbook to my right at all times, but. Base, you know, these are the principles acting solely in the interests of plan participants and their beneficiaries with the exclusive purpose of providing benefits to them. Carry out your duties prudently, following plan documents consistent with ERISA. This is this next one is really important. Holding plan assets in trust. Mm-hmm. And I think we can really unpack how the current market sometimes makes that impossible. Um, not impossible, but certain carriers can make that very difficult. And then finally, and this is probably where we agree that this should be at the top, is paying only reasonable plan expenses. So acting solely in the interest of plan participants, act prudently, follow plan documents, hold assets in trust, pay only reasonable expenses. That, that last one, it is the one that is causing, you know, so many people some, some heartburn because I think when their plan is not set up correctly, they have no ability to affect what is and is not reasonable. And then, and then sometimes it seems like that could be a subjective argument anyway, like whose definition of reasonable are we actually using? But but I think that when you set up your plan the right way, and full disclosure, I'm a big fan of not having any book of fingerprints on plans that I design. So you've got an independent TPA that really is just pulling from your own trust account. So you set up your own trust account. So you know that it's all of the plan's assets are secure and not commingled with other company dollars or of any kind or other employer funds. So it, it seems like it's just easier to, to be a good fiduciary when you don't have the book of fingerprints on your plan. But that whole reasonable <laughs> debacle, that is a sticky one. And even the plan sponsors that are doing a great job can still get hung up on that. And I think that it really depends on how your, your plan data is being analyzed how many claims are having to be circulated through a PPO network if you have one? There's just so many ways that you can get stuck and feel almost like you can't win. So give give people who might already be a, a high-performing plan sponsor, mm-hmm. but they feel like they're not ever going to be able to win on that last key point, give them some yeah. advice. So this is how I look at 
the reasonableness because it is who's reasonable, reasonable according to what, and what are we looking at for reasonableness? Are we looking at value? Cause I'm willing to pay more for a surgeon that is a high performer versus a doctor hack, right? It is a difficult right. question, but you know, what's not difficult is the basic presumption that in order to make any assessment of reasonableness by anybody's measure, you have to have the data, right? That's right. So I think that rather than looking at reasonableness and sort of skipping five steps ahead and saying reasonableness according to who, reasonableness according to what, which elements are we supposed to be judging for reasonableness? You're trying to defeat yourself before you've started. What you need to do is and, and not throw your hands up and say, well, I don't know how I'm going to assess that. Get the information that you would need to make the assessment. And I think from that, the answer will follow. And it's kind of that old adage that like, you may be not able to define it, but you certainly will know what's unreasonable, right? If you have a recovery services vendor that recovered $300,000 for you and you paid them 3 million, I know that that's unreasonable, right? Right. So, but you can't even begin to make that assessment if you're not informed. So the way that I think that you sort of steal yourself from potential liability and enable yourself to become a prudent purchaser that reviews for reasonableness, you have to start with having all of the information in order to undertake those assessments at your fingertips. And then it becomes a process of how do I review for reason? I mean, you're, you're nine tenths of the way there if you have, right. but if you don't have the information, you failed out of the gate, right? So yeah, that's, that's I guess, my, my thoughts on that piece. I think that when a plan sponsor starts to ask themselves, you know, when they do their own introspection into, am I doing a good job with this? And could I defend myself in court against a class action? I think every employer thinks that they're immune to that because their employees just love them. And and I think in many cases that's true, but we're starting to see more and more class action suits um, because employees are realizing their health plan is almost uh, defunct. It's just not the benefit that they knew it to be 10 years ago. And now it's becoming a real palpable problem where they almost have to declare bankruptcy just because of a healthcare challenge that they had to face. Right. Well, they're paying, they're paying more by and large, mm -hmm. they are getting less or costs are being shifted. And, and at some point they have to say, you know, cause they're essentially, we want consumers of healthcare to act like healthcare consumers in any other, or, you know, consumers in any other space. But really when you think about who controls the purchasing decisions in large part, it's the HR office or the CFO who picks which carrier, who picks which vendor, uh, who pitch, picks which hospitals are in that network. And the consumers, you know, yes, they are consumers of healthcare, but the purchasers, the employers, the ones that hold the contracts, they really have the ability to effectuate change. And yeah, I think that at some point, you know, when costs keep creeping up and benefits keep diminishing, somebody has to say what's going to give. And, and I'm not, I'm going to be, you know, perfectly honest here. The playbook from a litigation standpoint exists. And it was, it happened in the 401k world where the, you know, the fiduciary rule 
with respect to financial advisors and not self-dealing and, you know, engaging in reasonableness assessments of fees. There is a massive wave of lawsuits. And one of the reasons, you know, that they, these companies and the investors and the brokers and the, you know, they were held accountable because, you know, plaintiff's attorneys, when they see a big pot of gold, which health benefits spend is at 20% of the GDP, a big, big pot, they're going to find classes that are willing to sign up to take on employers from a fiduciary perspective. Comment, if you can, on public sector groups, local governments Mm -hmm. specifically, because I've had a conversation myself with a a couple of them, and they seem to wear this badge of honor, like, I'm not subject to ERISA, I'm exempt. (laughs) I keep thinking to myself, whoa, maybe you're exempt from some kinds of reporting, but you're not exempt from ERISA in total. Yeah, it's a a really... It's a topic we don't talk enough about because I've definitely heard that too. Even when I was running the state health plan and talking to our vendors and they would say, yeah, but you're not subject to ERISA. And I would say, well, perhaps not literally, but ERISA and ERISA principles and all those, those five principles that I just laid out um, in terms of being a prudent, or I'm sorry, a prudent purchaser and assessing for reasonableness, like all of those things, when it comes to the public fisc and taxpayer dollars, those should be expectations, not aspirations, right? Like that kind of ERISA should be a floor, not that we aspire to, but that we exceed in public sector because we're dealing with public trust and public trust funds. You know, every tax dollar is a public, you know, a dollar that's going into the public trust fund. And so, again, I think it's really troubling when people say, yeah, exempt from ERISA, we don't have to. And and depending on your state, you might have a statutory fiduciary obligation. You might have, you know, sort of default to the law of trusts, um, which many do um, in terms of health plan assets. But again, I think the important point here is if despite your, the fact that you're not sort of a private employer subject strictly to some ERISA provisions pursuant to the Department of Labor and their regulations, that does not mean you are not subject to a fiduciary duty. It's just where does that emanate from? Does it emanate from a different statute? Does it emanate from, you know, sort of common law principles of, tr- you know, public trust and the public fist? Again, which that, that's even a heightened standard, I think, above what ERISA requires of us. But it's always a good practice, right? Because there's so many um, precedents and uh, sort of interpretations and guidance that we can take from ERISA that helps health plan administrators in the public sector, you know, again, have that fiduciary framework that's ultimately going to lead to good decision making, which I think is what we're all going for. I agree wholeheartedly. So you touched on the fact that you were with the New Jersey State Health Plan Talk a little bit about your your history and how you've circled, you know, to this point and tell us about your new venture. I'm interested. Yeah. So I actually, you know, I will say I didn't grow up in healthcare um, and I am a, a recovering attorney. Um, <laughs> I, pra- I practiced for about eight years prior to um, joining, uh, you know, going into public service. Um, first as a deputy attorney general with the state of New Jersey. Um, and then acting as special assistant counsel to the governor's office. And it was in those two capacities that I really was exposed to this healthcare world. 
both with my interactions with Department of Banking and Insurance, who I oversaw at the governor's office in my portfolio, and also the Department of Treasury, which um, is the entity that sort of houses the state health benefits plan and school employee health benefits plan. So when uh, the administration ended, I was asked to go stay on at Department of Treasury with the state health plan and um, had the privilege and opportunity of a lifetime to run um, you know, a mega health plan with, at the time, 720,000 public sector employees and retirees. And by the time I left, we had around 820,000 members. And that growth really came from um, primarily the school employees health benefits program because we added school districts as over the course of those uh, couple years because we had really favorable rate action compared to the marketplace. So we um, just organizationally, we um, obviously we provided health benefits for all state employees, including institutes of higher education and retirees, but also local governments and municipalities, as well as local school districts that opted to join the plan. So we really acted almost as like a, a, a carrier in the marketplace when it came to, oh. you know, a local government business administrator comparing rates. Do I go with the state health benefits plan or do I go with, you know, a, a joint insurance fund or, you know, go on the market myself? So that's how we were able to grow. And, you know, I think one of my more proud moments was this past year, um, we grew our reserves on the school side and were able to give participating school districts in February of 2022, a premium holiday. So if anybody listening has ever lived in New Jersey um, or knows our sort of tax burden, giving a local tax, you know, property tax break uh, for school districts is really meaningful. Um, and they could put that money towards, you know, hiring new teachers or, you know, improving systems or whatever the case may be. Yeah, but it was, it was a good moment for the plan to be able to give back. I love that. And and it speaks to what we were just talking about a, a minute ago, how public sector entities really do have to be minding the store uh, because the taxpayers have a, a, they're one of the, well, they are the biggest stakeholder in that relationship. You know, they, they pay taxes uh, into the state's coffers and they expect a return on their investment. <laughs> right. And I can't think of another place that's more probably more important than in education, um, because you know that's always top of mind when we're talking, um, especially during election cycles, is how the public at large is getting uh, education to their children and and classroom sizes and all sorts of other resources allocated um, to children becoming better educated citizens of your state. And when you're squandering money um, in a poorly performing health plan, those are legitimately dollar for dollar fewer resources that you have to allocate into deliverables at the state level. So you're, you're in a key role to make sure that everyone is getting what they deserved on a number of different levels. I can't imagine how stressful that job was, but <laughs> I'm, I, it's, it's so, uh, you know, so much better for the citizens of your state that you were at the helm there to, to you know, to take a, a view that, you know, these are dollars that cannot and will not under my watch be 
uh, squandered because we have a duty, you know, to our citizens, the citizens of our state. So kudos for the job that you did there. But but you've turned a new leaf and um, you're doing something new now. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, so I've recently started um, a consulting firm with uh, with me, principal founder. It's called Versan Consulting, V-E-R-S-A-N. And I, How'd you I come stress- up with that name. <laughs> Yeah, I stress the name because it's really important, uh, sort of the ethos of what I aim to be and what we hopefully will be. And there is a Latin root for truth um, and san um, health. And so I really want to speak truth and healthcare and and health um, and what that means. And, And I think that that means being honest about the state of where we are and about where I think honest about the state of the future and what the future holds if left um, unchecked. So um, that's, yeah, that's where the name comes from. And I hope to work with large employers and organizations self-funded that have an appetite and have expressed sort of an interest in or willingness to move beyond the status quo sort of buka world and are ready to take that journey, but need help in navigating it. I don't think I have enough capacity or time in my day to convince, you know, organizations that think that Blue Cross Blue Shield and, and the Uniteds of the world are truly out to, you know, lower total cost of healthcare for their members. Like, I'm not going to convince that HR rep that I'm their guy. Um, <laughs> but I think that there are a lot, and, and we talked about this, right? There, There is a moment of reckoning and there's a movement afoot if we can keep the momentum going um, that employers are recognizing that there is a different way and that they'll, they need to have a different way, right? Because just like businesses become very interested in the price of gas or the price of logistics or the price of a supply chain because, you know, sort of our global competitiveness is at stake. Nowhere is that more true than in healthcare. Our global competitiveness as a country and as an economy is at stake if we do not do something and do something now. And, um, and I'm hopeful that, you know, some of the business groups and your group mitigate partners and, you know, there's enough space out there for a hundred of or hundred thousand of me's, right? I hope we all keep rowing in the same direction um, to try and bring change. Well, I think that we've had a super discussion, and I really want to um, say thank you for spending this time with me on healthcare solutions. I wish you all kinds of big success in Verson Consulting, and um, I want to do some work with you myself. So, hey, let's. <laughs> <laughs> let's tackle what we can in, in my marketplace together. So Absolutely. thanks again, Kristen Deacon. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to our important discussion. For more information about the work we do at Custom Benefit Solutions, visit our website at custombenefits.work. <laughs>